fitness myths. I mean, you know that I talk about these when it comes to footwear, but let's like open up to the rest of your body as well. And even just the philosophies about what you might be doing to get fit and where these myths came from and what's replacing them, hopefully happily uh, now and moving forward, this can actually give you the results that you would like. Uh, That's what's happening on today's episode of the movement movement, the podcast for people who want to know the truth about what it takes to have a happy, healthy, strong body, usually starting feet first, because those things are your foundation. And we break down the propaganda and the mythology, sometimes the straight out lies you've been hearing about what it takes to run, walk, hike, do yoga, CrossFit, uh, dance, dance revolution, hang gliding, you name it. Uh, Basically, the short version is uh, we want your body to be able to move effectively, efficiently, and enjoyably. And that's what we're doing by breaking all that stuff down. I'm Stephen Sashin from ZeroShoes.com, your host of the Movement Movement Podcast, which we call that because that was an awkward sentence, because we're creating a movement about natural movement. And that we part involves you. It's really easy. Just spread the word, share, like, give us a thumbs up, give us a good review. Visit our website at www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find other episodes and ways you can engage with us on social media. You know, look, you know the drill. If you want to be part of the tribe, just subscribe. And let's see if we can help uh, change the world by reintroducing people to letting their body do what it was made to do. And on that note, let's jump in. Ryan, Welcome to uh, the the podcast. Do me a favor. Tell people who you are and what you're doing here. Yeah, my name is Ryan Walker. Um, I've been a, a movement fitness nut since a very young age. I was obsessed with martial arts, acrobatics, tumbling, gymnastics. Um, eventually found my way into a weight room at a very young age. And it was all, I mean, it was all over from there. Three, four hours in the gym, obsession with bodybuilding culture, competed in CrossFit, coached the sport for a couple of years as well eventually uh, developed some pretty debilitating hip pain, which made me stop and reassess and kind of reach back in the bag of tools um, in terms of biomechanics with my education, also being a massage therapist for coming up on nine years now, having been a big fan of uh, anatomy trains, if anyone's familiar, uh, Tom Myers, who's kind of the pioneer of the whole myofascial movement. I started kind of stepping away and kind of from the dogma of the fitness industry and assessing, okay, how am I designed to move? What does human evolved movement look like? Standing, walking, running, and throwing. What, what, and, what, and what I'm doing in the gym, is that simulating or conducive to improving those biomechanics? Um, it, another thing I might like to add too is um, around the age of 20, I developed a pretty severe amount of depression um, and anxiety disorder for about two years. And um, during that time, after having emerged from it, it helped me also realize how much psychological or the psycho-emotional component plays into wellness and movement as well, right? So that there's a whole spectrum of wellness and components to wellness that we need to take into consideration, not simply just biomechanics, but all of these other components. But that's essentially me in a nutshell. And uh, yeah, excited to move forward with you. Um, well, two things. First of all, for anyone who's watching, because I know people will ask, um, I had some shoulder surgery three weeks ago. Uh, so mm-hmm. wearing a sling, blah, 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 doesn't really matter. Although it does relate to something you said, which is this was kind of brought on by an old gymnastics injury. So what mm-hmm. did you do gymnastics wise? Well, I say gymnastics. I was kind of more of a, a pseudo gymnast. I, I developed a passion for gymnastics around the age of 13, 14 years old. And I started tumbling at a gymnastics uh, facility in uh, Mobile, Alabama, where I was living at the time. And I, I remember I would show off in front of the, the head coach, men's coach, you know, and I would do all these fancy moves. And he thought, oh, you would have been a great gymnast, but you're too old. Right. So I, you know, I'd go out in the yard and I would tumble and, you know, that sort of thing, but more of a pseudo gymnast, a lot of handstands, a lot of kind of the conventional movements you would see in gymnastics. Um, and that's that ultimately a lot of those movements they they accumulate that that joint damage will accumulate over time, as you've just mentioned, um, ultimately leading to the shoulder injury. I mean, you can only do so many handstand push ups before your shoulders. Well, this was this was more like rings and whatnot before we had mm-hmm. the strength. We didn't think about building strength first. But mm-hmm. uh, just to give people some inspiration, I want to share, do a quick uh, five second screen share. This is something that I did. Um, couple of months ago, and to be clear, it says it'll show, I'm going to show a video. It'll show it on the video, but I did this when I was, when I turned 61 and uh, here's the screen share. Here we go. Oh, very nice. 
So that's my uh, that's my um, ins- hopefully you know inspiring people to keep doing things as they as they continue to age. My goal is to be the oldest guy to do a standing backflip on the floor. Um, I, w- I want that Guinness Book World Record on my wall. So back to you for the win. Um, so from what you learned from where you were kind of where you were starting, where you ended up now, I- I'm going to put you on the spot. Can you think of? I was going to say, like, what's the number one fitness myth that you're dealing with or that you see people? But if you can't do just, you know, number one, what's the Mount Rushmore? What are your top four? Yeah, I would say isolation. Um, Learn how to integrate your movements. So, again, if people just Google uh, fascial lines, you'll see the how muscles are actually connected, which they found through cadaver dissections, that muscles don't work in isolation. So that backflip you did as you were hinging forward and throwing the arms into extension, the back line, which are all the tissues on the posterior line of your body are lengthening. And just like a rubber band, in order to unlengthen, we're going to rapidly snap that tissue back, opening up the front line of the body and then tucking, right? So I would say the biggest myth is this idea of isolation and fixation on hypertrophy over function. That's a good one. I mean, to be clear, if you are, for whatever reason, fixated on hypertrophy, isolation is an important thing, but um, because otherwise you're not going to necessarily get the stimulation that you need. But that's a, you know, the number of people who really need that versus something where you're going to, where if you're, you know, working functionally, and I, I don't like the term functional fitness. I'm not a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. And um, I can ask you your thoughts on that one. But yeah, isol- that's a, that's a good opening because uh, all I can think of as soon as you said it is just the image uh, from pumping iron of Schwarzenegger doing bicep curls. Mm-hmm. And it's like, everyone thinks oh, that's what exercise is. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at, again, the kind of the evolution of movement, standing, walking, running, and throwing, right. We go from infancy crawling around on all fours. Then eventually, you know, we build the, the shoulder girdle and hip um, strength that we need in coordination of reciprocation with the arms and legs to getting to a standing position. Then obviously, once we can stand, we start initiating gait cycle, running, and then throwing. Now that's not to say that that's all that human beings can do, but that is objectively how we have evolved to move as human beings. So when we start taking symmetrically loaded, ergonomically designed barbells and moving them bilaterally and putting kind of these reciprocating motions that we're designed to do on the back burner, we're essentially taking these arbitrary movements and prioritizing them over evolved movement. Now, what I'm going to say throughout this podcast is going to ruffle some feathers because it, it is kind of contradictory to what a lot of people have been led to believe about the fitness industry. And I, and I want everybody to know that I, I hold no ill will toward people who who do bodybuilding, who do strength training. I did it for over 20 years. Um, I'm just here to try and lend my expertise and insight in biomechanics. Um, my background as a massage therapist um, to the listeners so they can hopefully at least integrate some of these concepts alongside the training that they're doing in the gym. Well, so let's jump into that then. So in lieu of uh, doing some isolation exercise, bicep curls for your biceps or bench press for your chest, which affects a number of other things as well. Um, that's more of a compound motion that, that's less isolation, but still kind of give me some examples or give everyone some examples of what they might be doing instead. And ideally something they could experiment with if they're taking on a walk right now or in, in a place that they could do that. And if not, mm-hmm. when they uh, get to a place where they could do something. Certainly. Well, first and foremost, I always encourage, and when I'm working with clients, the first thing we look at is is just posture. What is your standing looking like, right? So I try to address any lumbopelvic instability, uh, hyperkyphosis in the spine tissues that are pulling the skeletal structure out of alignment. That should be people's number one focus through myofascial release, through core integration and lumbopelvic stability exercises, just getting themselves axially loaded where their skeletal structure is aligned over itself. So that way they're not fighting against the mechanical tension of gravity and their head being in front of their body, et cetera. Right. Um, what I would encourage people to think about is, okay, let's say, let's take the peck, for example, let's take a peck fly. Now the peck is going to a B duct the, the arm, so, the transverse. Wait, I get, so I get a, So for, for people who are listening and not watching, we, let's describe some of these. So okay. first of all, for people who don't know what a peck fly is, so mm-hmm. describe that and just then describe the abduction as well. So okay. people can, can get a picture in your head. Yeah. So imagine you're laying down on the bench, you have two dumbbells extended up above over your head and you slowly lower your arms out to the side. You're going to be stretching the pecs and then contracting them back to that initial position. Yeah. So, so think so, about, I mean, the, the image that I have is, um, uh, well, flying, but yeah, think of like, you know, 
be a, be a bird. So lie in your stomach, mm-hmm. lift your arms up, flap them down. Now flip your whole body over. So yeah. that's the picture that I have for, for what a, what a chest fly looks like. And the, right. the abduction, the abduction, there's adduction, adduction. Now, the abduction is when you're bringing your arms back from being stretched up to, um, you know, pointing towards the ceiling uh, mm-hmm. over your chest. So what right. you say to be, about that then? Yeah, I'll try to be more mindful of the terminologies I'm using. Attending. No, no, I'm cool. It's just, when, when, I mean, it's okay. Um, I'll just stop you if we get to one that I know definitely mm-hmm. has a high probability of needing an example slash Thank you. Uh, definition. Certainly. So let's take the PEC, for example, and let's apply it to more of a functional context. So what I immediately think of is imagine taking, this is just what comes to mind, taking a machete and you're slashing across the body, right? You're doing a swinging motion. Now, the pec plays a huge role in that because it's what's allowing, again, for you to adduct, bring that hand back in toward the midline. But if we look at that motion, it's not as simple as just the pec contracting and lengthening. There's a whole core rotation. The obliques need to rotate. The, the, contra, the contralateral, the lat on the opposite side of you is going into a lengthened position. You're pivoting through the toe and then slashing back in that other direction. So the reason I use that as an example is when you're isolating, when you're doing these isolation movements, a bicep curl, try to imagine, okay, well, how would this muscle function in a more functional context? Um, mm-hmm. For ex- Another example, a great one is the bicep. The bicep plays a huge role in running. So when I'm running, it's what flexes my arm up, pulls my lat into a rotation, which pulls my trunk into a rotation. And then now the, the lat and the opposite glute have to con- co-contract in order to move my body through space. So there's a number of different exercise variations that you can do. Some of them very, very complex, but just how can people, I think people are moving in a good direction when they do compound movements. So two or more, more joints moving at one time, but think even further, how can I adapt this more to my human evolved biomechanics? Well, on a, let's back up to the bicep one. So while you said it might turn into a complex movement, now you got me dying to know. Give me an example of what that would look like where you're you're adding those extra joints, but but there is, I don't want to say a focus on that mm-hmm. bicep, um, but at mm-hmm. least it's you know attending to it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take, say, um, like a metabol- medicine ball explosive press, right? So it's very similar to doing a bench press. My, my shoulders... Right. And my pec have to go, or my shoulder has to go into extension. My pecs need to lengthen in order to contract. But then I take a step forward and explode outward, throwing the ball out in front of me. That would be integrating more of the fascial lines into one movement versus simply just doing, you know, a a bench press as an example of a compound movement. But again, you're lying in a supinated or a supine position on your back, pressing upward which doesn't really translate as well as it could if we were moving more through the X and Y axis of three-dimensional space. Right. That's a good one. So um, anything else on, uh, so isolation, that was one of our big myths. Um, anything more on that before we, I hit you for mm. myth number two? Certainly. I would say, oh, well, with regards to that, I think we're okay. I can move on to another myth if Let's you're ready. I'm, I'm, so I'm, I would I'm, say using exercise almost as an addiction to... Mm-hmm address overconsumption. And I think a huge part, you know, fitness is a form of stress. It's a use stress, right? It's a, it's a good form of stress, but by doing it too consistently, too frequently at, you know, moderate to high intensities is actually, I think, doing more harm to people than good. And I think people need to start being a little more mindful of getting the parasympathetic nervous system activated a little more resting and recovering from your exercise. So I think this idea of, you know, and I think CrossFit really kind of brought this culture to the mainstream of just this chronic exercise, two, three a day workouts. And, you know, I would argue that that's not sustainable or healthy for people. There's, I, I heard, um, I wish I remember the name of the researcher who wrote this book. I think it's called Dopamine Nation. Mm. And the basic premise is that in your brain, um, when there, there's kind of a set point for enjoyment, let's say. And if you do something really enjoyable, your brain is trying to kind of bring things back to normal and it's going to give you something that might be less enjoyable. It could be a fight with your spouse. It could be a, you know, who knows what. And one of her recommendations for, um, for not crashing, in fact, her theory on addiction is that you're not addicted to the substance. What's going on is that the substance is necessary or what, um, to get you back to some level after. So you take some opioid, you feel really good, then your brain crashes. And it's not that you're addicted. It's that you need to do something to get back up 
to normal. And that's going to be that opioid. And so that's where you learn that thing gets you back. And then eventually you need more and more and more and more and more. And she does bring up exercise is actually an interesting um, thing. How do I want to say this? So the, the, the way exercise can become addictive is very much the same. You mm-hmm. go to the gym and what you're doing, or you go for a run, whatever, what you're doing is stressful. But if you do the stressful thing first, instead of the pleasant thing first, your brain wants to adapt by giving you something pleasant. And so the addictive part of exercise can come from that, that you get that pleasant thing. It's like, oh, I need that. But the only way to get that is by putting myself through that stress. And eventually you need more stress because mm-hmm. that first level doesn't work as much. It's a very interesting neurological approach to thinking about these things. And from to, to your point, thinking about them, not that you want to stop, but that you want to pay attention to that relax and recover component, um, independent perhaps. So you're not building this sort of addictive pattern. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I actually just read that book. So it was, Oh, no shit. You, that you, yeah. me. you could have, you could have done the synopsis. <laughs> you didn't need me. Well, when I say just, it was about three months ago, so the details are a little, that was actually a good refresher. But the other thing I would like to draw to people's attention is a lot of that, a lot of the chronic exercise is coming for for a lot of people from a place of overconsumption. So this becomes, this comes down to a behavioral change that we're using exercise to address overconsuming. So it's, it's really, like I said, you know, wellness being the spectrum, there are certain behavioral patterns that we want to install in our lives. So that way we can be supportive of the others. So if I'm overconsuming, well, then I'm going to have this, this compulsion to go to the gym and burn calories, right? So it's really this nutritional lifestyle balance. There, there's so many factors to it. I could go on and on, but that's just one quick point but, I wanted to make. Well, you know, it occurred to me, that's um, that's such a puritanical thing. Like you do something that you think is somehow morally bad, overconsume, and then you have to go punish yourself to make mm-hmm. up for it. Right. I never yep. thought, I'd never thought of that perspective on exercise, but mm-hmm. that's a, that's a real one for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, and that, you know, that kind of plays into a lot of the bodybuilding culture too. And that's, you know, I mean, I was as much of a meathead as they get, right. I did, I was eating a, a huge caloric surplus to support weight on my frame that was, was outside of my natural point of where I needed to be. So, right. you know, I, I think it's more important for me, I've prioritized function over aesthetics, but with the improved function aesthetics have come and, and now I don't have to worry about counting my macros or maintaining this caloric surplus in order to hold on to all this excess tissue. So, you know, a lot of it comes down to what's sustainable for people. Well, I just want to highlight the the thing you said that with, and pardon me, if I'm not getting, I'm not going to get it verbatim, but with proper function, the aesthetics followed. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that um, maybe people worry about that Mm -hmm. if they're just doing, if they're not going in and doing bicep curls, how are they going to get their biceps bigger, bigger enough to, you know, in theory, attract someone of the appropriate, uh, the appropriate desirable sex. Mm. Um, And, um, uh, but this, but the idea that being functionally, I don't want to say efficient functionally, how would you fill out that word about how, you know, how proper functions can lead to the Mm -hmm. aesthetics that are right for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another piece. Like (laughs) there's a comic named Dom Herrera who does this great bit. I'm going to butcher it just by the intro to it where he says, you know, he loves when people go into a hairdresser and they come in with a picture. It's like, I want to look like this. Yeah. That's a male model. You are an ignorant slug. You, and he just goes on forever. It's like, but you know, we do the same thing. We just assume that, that anyone can become anything. You see a picture of someone you like, I can look like that if I do fill in the blank. And that's just not the way these things work. There's a great story. I don't remember who told, who said this one. It was a guy. He said, um, Oh, Oh, um, uh, okay. Doug, I'm not going to remember his name. Doug McGuff. Um, he was saying, look, so much of what your body's going to do is genetic. And here's a thing that I can tell you. There's a bodybuilder that I knew who had like the greatest calves in bodybuilding. He had a twin brother who never lifted a weight in his life, had better calves. There was another, another athlete who had the most incredible biceps in bodybuilding, had no calves and could never do anything about it. Trained them the exact same way. Couldn't, couldn't make them work. So even within your own body, there's going to be some parts that are responsive and other parts that aren't. You're going to look like how you look. And there's some people based on their biochemistry who I had a friend actually like this. This guy was six, four, 
175 pounds. He was skinny as a rail. We would go to like a Nautilus gym and he would put the, he would lift the stack on every machine. The guy was super strong. He weighed nothing because he produced so much myostatin that he couldn't have any muscle growth, but he got really strong. So, um, so I, I I think this is a, it's an interesting, I'm highlighting it because it's something I don't think I know I don't think about as often as I might. I was thinking about it this morning um, that I have certain parts of my body that are just like my dad, certain parts that are just like my mom. There's jokes in there that I'm not going to make. And um, uh, and that's just the way it is. You know, I can't train around those. That's the way this thing is fundamentally mm-hmm. built. And I don't think we really pay enough attention to that. And to and tell me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. from what you're talking about, about functional movement, and we're going to dive more into that, you're going to end up, you know, sort of being arguably what's, I don't know, I don't want to say the best you can be, because that's going to take a lot more attention, but you'll certainly start to optimize the parts of you that can be optimized and you'll, you'll end up being a better version of you, if not the best version of you. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And, you know, I think people have become kind of used to the idea of having aches and pains, joint aches and pains. And especially as a massage therapist, you know, it's become so normalized, but it's not the inherent condition of a human being. We're not supposed to be walking around with knee pain and hip pain. And if you're experiencing that, which I'd imagine a majority of people listening right now are experiencing some sort of chronic ache or pain or injury, that if you optimize, you focus on optimization of biomechanics your body should be, and I, I say should, right? Because I don't want to make any guarantees, but should be moving without pain. And you should be able to move freely through three-dimensional space without limitation. So that's, you know, it's something I want to get across to people because it's it's having that mid-shoulder, you know, the, the pain between the scapulas, you know, that could be something uh, excessively protracted scapulas, right? If you could get into some myofascial release to the pecs, get the scaps to sit neutrally, over the, over the rib cage, like they should, you'll start to see those things go away. Well, and um, backing up to the very first thing you said about posture. Uh, one of the things that we hear all the time when people put on a pair of zero shoes, like, Oh, it feels like my posture has changed. Like, yeah, we're not elevating your heel and shoving right. your pelvis forward. And then you, have, you don't have to adjust. And right. so there are a lot of people who've had tremendous benefits from just getting out of something that just gets in the way mm-hmm. or just alters things in a way that's unnatural um, that we've been sold literally mm-hmm. and sold a bill of goods about for the last 45 to 50 years. So that's a now. Um, and, and of course, we're, we're also doing things now that are adding a level of stress. I'm going to be the first one to admit it. I mean, um, running a rapidly growing business, uh, mm-hmm. not the most relaxing thing in the world. And if it weren't for my hot tub, I'd be dead. So, um, uh, so no, that's a really, that's another very interesting point. Uh, um, all right. I'm going to hit you. Do we have a, do we have a number three in your Mount Rushmore? That that was kind of number three is, is the normalization of, of pain and dysfunction. So yeah, no pain, no gain, baby. Mm Yeah. And And then, and then what, just to kind of touch on number two, we talked about is, is kind of identifying these arbitrary standards of aesthetics, right? Because uh-huh. if we, you know, we look at, look at these bodybuilders and, and, and I think it looks awesome, right? It looks great to be jacked, but we also have to realize too, like, where is this paradigm coming from? And I just want to encourage people to step back and, and, and kind of ask questions. Well, why does having 20 inch biceps, why is that considered aesthetic? And if you look at, and you look at sprinters, I'm actually starting to think that track and field athletes are some of the most functional. I know we don't love that word, but it's the only one I can think of functional athletes. They're running, they're throwing, they're jumping and they look great. Well, I can tell you about sprinters. Sprinters bodies have changed a lot in the last mm-hmm. 20 years because a lot of sprinters, A, came out of football or were at least doing football as well. And a lot of sprinters um, just spent a lot of time in the gym doing kind of everything you can think of. And mm-hmm. if you look at them lately, um, they have much less, many of them, not all of them, much less developed upper bodies than they used to. And many really, really good sprinters right now, Noah Lyles, for example, if you bumped into him on the street, you would never think he's the fastest man in the world. He hmm. doesn't look, he's not big. He's yeah. not jacked. He's not huge. I mean, he's wearing normal pants. You won't even see, you know, that he's got legs, let alone a right. butt. So hmm. it's, um, but it's really changed. Now, of course, the joke is a couple of years ago, right before the um, world championship trials, 
I'm watching or I'm watching the world championship trials for the U.S. team. And these guys were huge. And then two weeks later, the world championships or two months later, not so huge. So mm-hmm. clearly, whatever they were taking for the nationals, they were not taking for the worlds because they were having a dis- different type of testing going on. Right. Um, so there, there is that. And, and, and again, some of that really is just body dependent. Carl Lewis was not a big guy, mm-hmm. um, but he was running against really big guys who were you know, pretty close to as fast as he was. So that's the, uh, there's a guy that I train with um, a guy named Sean, who he, he probably weighs about 225 right now. He's about uh, how Sean, let's say 35 ish. I'm not mm-hmm. sure still incredibly. And I don't mean like, you know, 230 pounds of just muscle. The guy is got some serious body fat. He's the first to admit it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just not going away. And he still runs unbelievably fast. He's that strong. And his mm-hmm. form is that good, that efficient, that he can still run really well, even at that weight with all that extra baggage. It's right. wild to see. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But we can jump into it. Or what you, you go ahead and take the lead. Where would you no, like no, to go I was going to say, jump away. Um, yeah. And that's, that's why I talk about prioritizing posture first. Cause what you were saying about the, the friend who's running with good technique, right? Because if, for example, what you typically see in people is a kypholuridosis. It's very common. It's part of the slouching culture, right? And that is going to be when the thoracic spine is in an excessive forward flexion and the lumbar is in an, a hyperlordosis, a hyperextension. So, okay, so, so let's, so let's do that for people. So mm-hmm. the, uh, the thoracic part is your shoulders are rounded over basically what you're like when you're hunched over looking at your phone and right. the lumbar part of that is the opposite. So you're overarched mm-hmm. um, is that combination. And then often, like you said before, often that's also going to have your head way in mm-hmm. front of your body typically as well. Right. And why it's so important to first address those postural distortions first is let's say you don't address those and you go straight into running. Well, what I see in a lot of people is if my thoracic spine is locked into a forward flexion position, I can't one, I can't get enough rotation through that thoracic spine because in order to move myself through space, there needs to be a counter rotation at the hips with the thoracic spine. And that creates almost like an unwinding through space. Right. So if I'm stuck, I can't rotate. My scapulas also can't move into flexion efficiently either. So I give that example for people to understand that why it's so important to first address posture, take into consideration the shoe where you're using just, and I'm sure your listeners know all about this, but you know, if I want to just kind of for the listeners explain axial loading and how important that is. So axial loading is essentially when our, when our skeletal structure is aligned over itself, right? So I like to use the analogy of taking a two by four and standing it on end. It would take very little pressure to knock that two by four over. So my brain's not going to let me fall over on my face, right? So if there's, let's just say my head comes out in front of my body, even if it's an inch, what's happening is my body naturally wants to fall forward. But again, my brain's not going to let me do that. So what's going to happen is unconsciously, I'm going to create a hyperextension, right? Like a a butt sticking up in the air kind of position to push my body back over an aligned position. So it's very important for people to understand that. And especially with shoe wear, with elevations in the heel, what that's doing is it's pushing the center of gravity forward, which is why I'm such a fan of the zero shoes, the minimalist shoes. Um, And, and, you know, obviously we could get into foot pronation and how you know, that, it, that translates up the kinetic chain as well. And more of kind of uh you start to see more of these S shaped curvatures, these scoliotic curvatures in people's spine as a result of over supination or over pronation of the feet. Um, there was something I was going to add to, or ask you about that. Well, the pronation thing is an interesting one because um, there's, there is appropriate pronation, part of the spring mechanism of your lower mm-hmm. leg. Um, and then there's the part where you're not strong enough and therefore, or you're, you have hyperpronation because you're wearing a shoe with a sole that's stiff and has a flared and, and is flared. So you're hitting an outside edge and it's making your foot kind of flop and you don't have the time to then um, accommodate that and, and sort of adopt a strong position. When you're, if you're running with natural form and you're landing midfoot or forefoot, it's almost impossible to pronate because you're landing in a strong position. And even if you're, when, and if your heel comes down to the ground, it's doing that with your arch fully loaded and something strong. So there, there, there will be some pronation. That's a natural thing. In fact, it's funny. There are a number of um, world-class world champion distance runners 
who, when they're running, you can see their inner ankle bone practically hit the ground, massive pronation. But it's ironically, it's under control for them. That's just the way their body works. But um, I was in the lab with Dr. Bill Sands, who used to be the head of biomechanics for the US Olympic Committee. And he talks about the hyperpronation where you just can't adjust fast enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the part um, that becomes problematic. And people who are wearing nor- quote normal shoes have this problem because if you're wearing a shoe where it's got a big thick heel, you land on your heel, mm-hmm. then your heel's a ball, you're unstable. By the time your foot comes down, your arch is not engaged. And you're, unless you're perfectly aligned, which no one is, then you're going to end up falling outside supination, inside pronation, one or the other. And yeah, like you're saying, that's going to you know work its way up the chain and mm-hmm. have impacts all the way up to your neck. Right. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of taking care of myofascial elasticity. So fascia has a viscoelastic quality. So if we break that word down, visco, viscosity and elastic, having an elastic quality to it. And just like if you took a a wad of Play-Doh, it'll hold its shape. But if you lay it on the table over time, it will start to kind of melt and flatten out. And if your fascia is healthy, it should have this rebounding effect where it's very adaptable. But so many people have gotten stuck in postural distortions where the tissues, those myofascial tissues have become dehydrated and adhere to one another. And that's where you get, you know, fibrotic, uh, you know, knots, trigger points, things like that. Mm. And this is why with so many clients, I put them on a very aggressive myofascial release protocol, because if you have an adhesion in that tissue, well, what it's doing is it's, it's distorting your length tension relationship in the muscle. So now the muscle, like, let's say you hit midfoot strike, your Achilles, your calcaneal tendon is going to lengthen. And then along with that is the calf is obviously going to lengthen as well. But if there's an adhesion in there, just like if you took a, a rope and you tied a knot in it, well, it's not going to get the length potential that it could have. Right. So that's another one I'd, I really encourage people to do is, is explore, get a lacrosse ball, get a tennis ball, explore areas where you have a lot of hypersensitivity, spend some time on that. And another thing that I see a lot of people doing with foam rolling is they'll get on a foam roller and they'll roll their quad out back and forth for 30 seconds and call it, you know, myofascial release, but it's not because uh, fascia is made up again, it's viscoelastic and it's made up of a thixotropic protein. So if, if you take cornstarch and water, and it, it holds, again, that hardened shape. You can tap it. You can punch it. It's not going to move. But if you put your finger on it, your finger will slowly sink into that, that material. So when you're doing your myofascial release, it's really important that people spend a minimum. This is what you see with uh, deep tissue massage or structural massage is that slow, deep compression into the tissue, even getting all the way to the bone where the periosteum is, right? The fascia that enc- encases the, the bone. And um, I think that goes along with what you were saying with the the people who pronate, but there's a springing effect that happens if the fascia is healthy. Got it. And just to highlight that, because people do um, myofascial release uh, incorrectly more often than not, this could be one of our, one of our other, this is a subset of our top four, Mm -hmm. our Mount Rushmore of of, um, um, mythology. Yeah, just rolling over something can feel good, but it's not actually doing the thing you want. And just by staying on that point and what I tell me if this is um, something similar to what you do, if I'm like finding some spot in, I don't know, I'll say my hamstring for lack of a better example. um, The thing that I'm going to do is like gently, uh, well, to the extent that you can be gentle when you're shoving a lacrosse ball into your almost down to your femur, but I'll flex and extend that leg. So I'm basically staying on that point while moving that muscle through range of motion, which is part of what seems to actually have an impact. Do you disagree with that idea? No, I think that's good. A a little bit of active lengthening um, really, really helps. It helps kind of create a flossing effect over that tissue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very similar to what you'll see with um, ART or active release technique. You know, you'll have a practitioner grab onto your pec and they'll say, okay, now, you know, extend your arm up over your head slowly. It's not at all comfortable, but what you're going to do is you're going to pull that myofascial adhesion through that pressure, breaking it down. And then as they bring their arm back, it's going to, it's just going to floss over that tissue. So yeah, I I like the, the active flexion and extension over that uh, pressure. There's a a, a guy that I'm blanking on the name of his company. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to find it who does a similar thing to that, to ART of like, let's find where something's stuck. I'm going to press on it really hard. Now you have to move your arm through range of motion. Although he does it with electricity. Mm. So he can, he makes the muscle contract um, more than you could on your own with electricity and then move your body. And same thing. It is 
incredibly unpleasant while you're doing it. And the moment you're done, it's like, holy crap, that was the greatest thing ever. So it's back to that uh, dopaminergic effect. It's like you Mm -hmm. put yourself through something unpleasant, then there's this great release. And Mm -hmm. the next thing you're just like, all right, now work on this spot. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's very entertaining. And, and it is strangely addictive, myofascial release work, because, you know, I have clients who, you know, at the end of our session, I say, okay, we're going to foam roll the quads. And they're just like, oh, God. But when they get up and they feel that their hips are able to get into extension more, their knees are able to flex more freely, you think, oh, my gosh, imagine if I spent an hour doing this, how am I going to feel? You know, and I I always, I love sitting down, you know, put a podcast on this one, of course, and and get into those tissues, listen to a podcast, you know, put something on the background. and. It's hard to get yourself to do it initially, just like anything yeah. that's hard to do. But once you get about five minutes in, you start feeling these releases, almost like these kind of a twitching in the muscle fiber. And to me, that's that's success because that's a, a re-neuralization back to those myofibrils that were once stuck and not getting the neural input and feedback they should have gotten. Well, that's an interesting point, actually. And I wonder how much of it is, excuse me, actually impacting the fascia versus sending a signal to your brain that it doesn't need to be sending a signal back to the muscle spindle fibers to contract that muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it, it may be, I mean, and I'm not saying it's one or the other, it just may be that there's an overlap between some habitual tightness because your brain has habituated mm-hmm. to sending out signals saying, keep this thing tight. Um, and it relates in my head to when I watch people running, I've got a lot of really good runners in my neighborhood and I watch them running in a big, thick, elevated heel shoe, but they have really good form. They're landing midfoot, everything, you know, landing under their body, everything looks good, but their heel can't come down to the ground. And mm-hmm. when they put on something minimalist, they go, oh, see, it's hurting my Achilles. It's like, mm-hmm. no, 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 your brain has basically, you've taught your brain not to let your Achilles stretch fully. Now mm-hmm. you have to slowly just teach your brain. It's not changing the tissue is just teaching your brain that it's safe to do this. And then it will be, you know, then it will be. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Given number four, number four, um, this kind of goes along. Uh, are we still on myths or. Uh, yeah, let's do, if you have one more, we'll do one more myth. And if not, we'll go into the, the anti-mythology. Okay. Let me think. Right. I know there's tons, but I'm on the spot right now. So obviously I'm, I'm, I'm reaching. Let's see. Um, the Je- want me to, want me to whistle the Jeopardy theme song? Will that be <laughs> yeah, that'll help. Thank you. Um, oh, okay. So I've got one this kind of falls back in line with weightlifting and a lot of the movements, conventional movements that people are doing in the gym is if you look at the way people are loading their bodies, they're, they're loading their bodies in this kind of Z axis right? this vertical up and down. But if you look at a majority of movement, especially running, right, it's happening again through through space, through a horizontal plane. So what I would encourage people to start consider doing is moving loads through that range of motion, through a horizontal plane of motion versus mm-hmm. axially loading. And another reason why I've deviated from a lot of the conventional training is I, I'm not a big fan of loading up the spine. And I know that's going to be really controversial for people. But if you go to see a doctor because you have back pain, typically there's something happening in the nerve or uh, in the spine. Maybe it's a a disc bulge is laying on a nerve and that's creating a problem. So what do we do? We encourage people to traction that, right? Let's take pressure off of that nerve. So once I stepped back and I started looking at things through more of a functional training lens, I started thinking, well, why would I voluntarily compress my spine? And because ultimately I'm doing the opposite of what I should be doing for spinal health. So again, I know that's going to ruffle some feathers, but since I've gotten away from that, pause there. Why do you think that's feather ruffling? Because it seems so obvious that you don't want to put an excessive, you know, downward force onto your, through, through, onto the disc and through, and and the nerves in your spine. So what kind of people find that um, uh, um, getting their panties in a wad and things in a twist and, feathers in their ruffle and, you know, et cetera. Well, and that's where the the kind of dogma with the fitness industry comes in, right? Is when you do something for so many years and you tell people, Hey, that's probably not the best thing for you. There's going to be this cognitive dissonance, right? It's like telling a Pentecostal, you know, Christian, Hey, God doesn't exist, right? Like, what, what are you talking about? I've, you know, I've invested all this time and energy and, and really what it comes down to is having a sense of humility and, and openness to learning. Like I'm, I'm after objective truth. What works? If somebody can prove me wrong, I'll do it. And, and I'm totally fine with being wrong. I just know that I went from debilitating hip pain a year ago, not being able to get up out of a chair to no pain, 
right? Um, decompressing my spine with the movements. And if you're, if you're moving in a way, again, that word functional way, movement should actually be decompressive to your joints and to your spine. I mean, if, if your posture is where it should be and you're running, when you hit the ground, a pressure wave moves up through the body, right? So if my right. fascial visco, uh, viscoelasticity is where it should be, I'm going to be distributing that, that, that shock wave through the body and, uh, in an equal way. Right. But if I don't, let's say I don't have lumbopelvic stability, I have hyperextension in the spine. I'm going to basically be taking that pressure wave, uh, pressure wave right into the lumbopelvic uh, hip complex. I'm got kind it. of going off on a tangent so, here. I'm not sure why I brought no, that no, up. That's, but... no, 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 you got it. Actually, here, I'll bring you back maybe. So then give me an example of how, of, you know, some movement thing. Well, there's two things that I, two thoughts that I have. So for a lot of people, it's like, Hey, we've got a squat, got a deadlift, and there's going to be a lot of spinal loading there. I'm trying to avoid spinal loading as much as I can. Cause I've got a grade two um, L5 S1 spondylolisthesis with a pars defect, blah, blah, blah. Basically I got a broken spine. So um, I try to do as little as I can. And which is, which is sad because I really loved when I was squatting big weights and deadlifting mm -hmm. big weights. It's fun. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what most people think, you know, if you're going to work your body, you got to do squats, you got to do deadlifts. So that's one aspect of like, you know, what would people, what would people be doing other than something like that? And to add that horizontal movement component, describe, you know, something that you would be doing or having people do um, mm -hmm. to, to have that decompression happening through movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, the best way, the most basic one I can, I can explain without the visual element is uh, one that I'll have a lot of clients do is stand with feet hip width apart and reach out in front of them, grabbing a, uh, a cable or a handle, and then kind of mimicking the reciprocating arm motion you would see during gait cycle or running. So right now my shoulder is being tractioned. I'm opening up the scapula. I'm rotating through the thoracic spine. So let me, let me describe what you're doing. So you have your right hand extended just straight out in front of your body mm -hmm. and you're rotating your arm counterclockwise. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Almost okay. into an internally rotated thumb down. Yeah. Well, I was going to say it's internally rotating, but I was going to, for people who don't know what that is. So right. you're rotating your whole arm by mm -hmm. rotating it counterclockwise. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. So right there, I'm, I'm allowing that torque to pull my spine into a rotation all the while maintaining good lumbopelvic stability, right? I'm, I'm keeping the quote unquote core activated, right? So then what I'm doing is I'm reciprocating, I'm pulling and reaching simultaneously, creating a, a counter rotation and then opening up my spine in the other direction. But now I'm getting a resistance load in conjunction with this tractioning that's happening. So, so just maybe... Would you, would you be using, so if you've grabbed a cable, for example, so for the resistance part, would you be uh, having the, using the cable just on one arm or doing, or both? Just one arm. Um, yeah, I mean, you can do, you can do both. There's not, it's not right or wrong. It's just when I'm trying, mm -hmm, when yeah, I'm trying to improve, oh, sorry, I keep cutting you off. Uh, when I'm trying to improve people's gait cycle mechanics, Right. I'm getting that reciprocation between the arms. That's what I'm trying to, because again, there's so much happening People are so fixated on this sagittal plane movement, bilateral movement. Forward, yeah, yeah, yeah. When we so, know that. We, so again, just I'm just doing the I'm just doing the watching you to, to English translation. So you got your arm extended in front of you as you're doing that internal rotation, as you're rotating your arm counterclockwise. It's also um, you're twisting your torso, keeping your pelvis stable, twisting your torso so that your arm and shoulder are moving forward, basically because mm -hmm. of that twist. And then as you pull back, you're keeping your arm straight, you're rotating it the other way. So now you're going clockwise, you're mm -hmm. rotating your torso the other way. So now your right shoulder is coming behind you as you're now taking your left arm and having it go uh, forward in front of you and rotating inward. So it becomes this, this multi-planar rotation thing, starting mm -hmm. with your arms and your upper and your thoracic vertebrae. How do? Yeah. Cool. Uh, you, I'll tell you where to send the check. So, um, so no, that, that, that's a really good one. So in the time that we have left, um, and frankly, just going over the myths, what I like about looking at mythology is it almost automatically suggests whatever the opposite might be, whatever the more correct uh, um, way of viewing something might be. So getting past our mythology, what do you want to tackle next? The, the flip side to mythology? Sure. I'm open to wherever you, wherever you'd like to take oh, no, it. No, no. Hey, no, this is all you. I was trying to, I was, mm -hmm. was doing a mediocre attempt at leading based on where I thought you were going. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of like to return to the fascial, uh, the fascial lines for people because I feel like it's it's such an mm. essential piece in our movement. And um, what I would encourage people to do is again Google fascial lines, take a look at the different ones. You know, we've got the superficial front line, the lateral line. We've got the spiral line, which is a really really complex, interesting uh, fascial line to look at. And when we talk about fascial lines, what it what a fascial line essentially is is it's a sequence of muscles that are tied together through fascia that are all supposed to co-contract simultaneously to drive global movements, big movements, right? Backflips, running, throwing. So nothing again is, is working in isolation. So I would encourage people to Google it up and then pick one line that you like and start doing myofascial release through that chain and watch how global movements will change. So like, let's say you have lateral knee pain on the outside of your knee. Well, most people are probably going to go and foam roll the IT band or the TFL, but don't stop there. Work on all the other lateral line tissues, work on the, you know, the, uh, the lateral compartment of the lower leg where the, the tibialis interior is and the peroneals work up into the obliques and the lats, and then watch how that whole movement will just open up because you've released the tissues that are all supposed to work in unison with one another. Mm, that's a good one. Um, and then, uh, I imagine, um, I brought up Feldenkrais work a number of times. I haven't done it in a long time, but it's something I was really fond of. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you open up one side and that kind of makes your brain almost wake up to what it forgot was possible. And then the other side often comes along for the ride. It's like, you know, I'd like to say my first bear, my second barefoot run, when my left leg was injured from my first barefoot run, I had a big blister. I was mm -hmm. just paying attention to the good side during that second run. And eventually the bad side figured out what good meant and mm -hmm. got on board. And suddenly everything was fast, easy, light, enjoyable in a way that it wasn't, you know, a second earlier. Right, right. Yeah. And, and another thing I like to have people do is, is go for a walk. And it, this actually kind of becomes a, a walking meditation as well, because you're drawing your awareness to how does the force being distributed through your body feel? So for example, the other day I went for a walk and my TFLs tend to get really tensor fascia, a lot of muscles on the front of your front and lateral side of your hip tend to get really tight from all the years of martial arts and, you know, doing sidekicks and loading up that muscle over and over again. So I was walking and I thought, wow, you know, when I, when my leg swings into extension, as I'm walking that left TFL is really locked up. It's keeping me from getting into sufficient extension, putting my leg behind me. So I'll come home and I'll make a mental note of that. And I'll get down on that, on that lacrosse ball. And I'll just isolate that tissue for, you know, five, 10 minutes, however long you feel you need to, obviously you don't want to do it for an hour on one spot. Cause then <laughs> you're also becoming ischemic in that tissue. You're drawing blood out and fascia works like a sponge where we push blood out and then the blood comes back in. So now we have this nutrient rich blood and hydration getting back to the tissue and then go walk again. So like a test and retest and just try to draw your awareness, no headphones, no music, just go walk draw your attention to how you feel and kind of develop an inner body experience and, or an awareness and then address it and then retest it. I like it. I'm going to give, I'm going to give you one to play with that. I've been using a lot lately that I discovered okay. accidentally. Mm -hmm. It's related to what we just said. So when I'm walking up a hill and I can do this when I'm walking like on a flat as well, but I especially do it when I'm walking up a hill, my left foot is on the ground behind me. Uh, you know, I'm pushing forward. So my left foot is behind me mm -hmm. and I twist my upper body um, to, sorry, my right foot is behind me. Let's do it that way. My right foot is behind me because it's on the ground. I twist my upper body to the left. And mm -hmm. so there's a stretch in my hip flexor. And then mm -hmm. as I'm about to switch legs, when I start twisting my upper body towards the right, I don't need to do anything in my hip flexor. It's, it was stretched already. And just by letting go, it's sort of like the rubber band releases mm -hmm. and my leg comes forward just enough to end up right underneath my center of mass. Mm -hmm. And so by just twisting my upper body and getting my hip flexor to stretch and release and stretch and release, mm -hmm. I end up like, like twisting my way up a hill. It takes mm -hmm. no effort. There's like almost no exertion at all. It looks dorky as hell. You look like, I mean, you look like you're doing some bad dance thing, right. um, but it's really interesting to play with. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about the whole fascial line thing, because what's going on in that twisting, I mean, you, you could do the same thing without twisting your upper body, but it doesn't really work the same. Mm -hmm. So that whole fascial line thing, it literally, because I, I can feel it from mm -hmm. my shoulder all the way down to my heel when I do that. Mm -hmm. It's really, really fun. So you'll have to do it and let me know what happens. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's an interesting one. I like that. And what it also does is it draws awareness to how the the kind of synergistic relationship between antagonistic muscles are working mm-hmm. together. So, so an example of an antagonistic muscle would be my bicep flexes my forearm and my tricep extends my forearm. And that's how the body moves is it, it, it te- technically it undulates. So yeah. as I'm stepping forward and my spine is rotating and my hip flexor is flexed, the muscles that are antagonistic to that are all contracting simultaneously yeah. as the other set of tissues are lengthening. And it is, so complex when you start going down this rabbit hole. And I think that's a great exercise to draw awareness to how that functions. It's, it's really, it's really fun to just experiment with finding ways to move that just take less effort with the parts that you think need to have effort. So Mm -hmm. you think walking and running are all about your legs. What happens if you start thinking about it from a different place, from your hands, from your shoulders, from your hips? Um, this is, I mean, my wife and I, we got our first ever dog about a year and a half ago. And so I have a lot of time every day where I'm just walking the dog and just playing with these movement patterns on our, and and there's different ones that I do downhill versus uphill. So, you know, there's things to explore downhill as well that are, that are very entertaining. So yeah, Yeah. that's, that's my, my entry into the, into the sweepstakes for this one. So what, what, if anything, were we missing before we start to find our way to a landing? Yeah, let me think about that for a second. Um, we've covered myofascial release, very important uh, fascial lines. Again, um, you know, nothing's coming to mind right now, but I'm open to questions to help stimulate any thoughts. <laughs> I, I, I got nothing. So um, so let's just do the easy thing. If people mm-hmm. want to find out more about everything we've been talking about and more about you and the work you're doing and how to work with you, possibly, how would they do that? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of casual, laid back. I you know just reaching me on uh, you know a, a DM on on Instagram um, at Coach Ryan, the number one Coach Ryan one. Um, I just recently launched uh, a comprehensive uh, 3D movement course where I run people through the entirety of everything we talked about: the myofascial release, the core integration exercises, the foot restructuring protocols. Um, over 70 lessons there. So if people are interested in that, they can just find me on Instagram and find a link there with access to that program. Perfect. Well, that's, um, I hope people take you up on that because this has been super, super fun. And you brought us some things that, again, I think are obviously uh, highly misunderstood and to find alternatives that are not only, um, let's say, better, but can feel better. And I mean, I was going to say functionally better, but also just, you know, feel better because some of the stuff that we're talking about, we didn't even get into this. It's just when you, you know, when you start using your body the way it's made, it just feels good. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and my yeah. final thoughts on that is our bodies, we still have the evolutionary biology and biomechanics designed to operate within a natural world. But we don't live in a natural world, right? We live in a world on top of the natural, the modernized world. So not only do I encourage people to start moving in a way that's consistent with your evolutionary biomechanics, but start behaving in a way that's consistent with it as well, right? Sleep as the sun goes down, wake up as the sun comes up, get morning sun on your skin, right? Don't overconsume. consume, uh, surround yourself with peers and, and in an environment that is conducive to good health. You know, it, it's, it's a full spectrum and uh, it's easy to get myopic on the movement when there's so many other factors to take into consideration. Yes. Yes. Unfortunately you left chocolate out of that equation and I think <laughs> that's a grave oversight. Hey, dark chocolate's great, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ryan, thanks. This has been a total, total pleasure. And everyone do please check him out on Instagram at Coach Ryan One. Um, let me know what happens when you guys do get in touch and you start exploring some of these things and have some fun doing that. And once again, a quick reminder, head over to www.jointhemovementmovement.com to find previous episodes, all the way you can ways you can interact with us on social media, all the other places you can find the podcast if you don't like the one you're using right now. And if you have any recommendations or suggestions, ideas of who should be on the show, uh, telling me I've got a case of cranial rectal reorientation syndrome, whatever you want to say, you can drop an email to me. I'm at move, M-O-V-E, at jointhemovementmovement.com. But most importantly, of course, just go out, have fun, and live life feet first.